You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. And so we're going to see what God does, but I want to preach to you something. If you've been in church for any period of time that you've heard before, uh, maybe many times, and it's not the content that's complicated, it's the application that can be either beautiful or devastating. And so Jesus makes this statement as he closes out the famous, most famous sermon that's ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about, and maybe you've heard it before, there's, there's hymns written about it, uh, the person that builds their house on sand versus the person who builds their house on a solid rock foundation. And before he ever gets to that, he starts saying some radical things in the book of Luke, in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, about how hard it actually is to even get to heaven. In fact, in Luke, we're gonna talk about that today, he talks about it being a narrow door. In Matthew, he says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, is gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. And just by a show of hands as we get started, how many of you guys have heard that and been a little bit scared? You hear that and you're going, what exactly does that mean and how does that affect me? Because the people he's talking about seem to be pretty active in ministry. For me, if this doesn't rattle your cage a little bit, then you probably don't have a very strong pulse. But he talks about being foundational in your faith and what your foundation is built on. I was preaching a wedding sermon last night you'll notice that the reason there's this huge middle space instead of three sections, which I know in your organized minds that just, you know, maybe you're getting used to that. And this is gonna be the fun part. We're gonna switch it back. Like, I think next Sunday it won't be like this. And then the Sunday after that, it'll be like this again. And so we just want you to never be comfortable here. Uh, but one thing I know about brides is if you say no middle aisle, I mean, just you wanna run for the hills, right? And so we create this middle aisle. I'm doing this wedding last night. It was absolutely packed. And it was four-ish, and then into 4.30, and you guys remember what happened at 4.30 last night? Noah came by on the ark. <laughs> it was bad. And in my mind, when it was bad, I was thinking selfishly, even while we were stating vows, and they were repeating after me and exchanging rings, little confession, because I know some of you were at the wedding, I was already thinking about myself in that process, and the reason I was thinking about myself is every time we live at the farm, every time it rains, where it really pours, there is something that specifically happens to me where I take the church shop back and then for the next several hours, I'm praying at my house in the basement. And so I was thinking about that during the wedding and it was so significant, the lights in here, I didn't even know this happened, but the lights in here will flash if there's a tornado warning. And so I thought it was apocalyptic. I was about to start preaching Revelation, but <laughs> that started happening, and it was right when they were leaving and walking down the aisle, and I was thinking, man, I look outside, and there's, you know, it was just, ra- do you guys remember? Were you watching? It was raining so hard, and then sure enough, I get this text from my wife, don't stay long at the rehearsal, or I'm sorry, at the rehearsal, at the reception, uh, the basement's flooding, and so um, she had a few other choice things to say to me. They were all about Jesus loving me, and and, and getting home, and, and so then I went home, and, and, and it broke my heart because she already had it cleaned up. It just broke my heart. But I tell you that to make this statement as we get going. 
when you're looking at the foundation of your life, because Jesus is gonna talk about when the storm comes, and the storm is this, this thing that happens when you have a weak foundation that exposes the reality of that foundation. When the storm comes, and I wanna start with that idea. When the storm comes, and what I want you to hear as we get started is this. The rain is inevitable, amen? I mean, if it's not yesterday at the wedding, I can just kind of put in my you know, planner, and I don't know when it'll happen, but I can put in my planner that about so many times a year in this season and in the summertime, I'm gonna be in that basement because although we've tried a lot of things and it's gotten a lot better, there's just a few areas that unless there's some significant repair work done, I'm gonna be in that basement. But my point is this as we get started. It isn't the rain that's the problem. The rain is the reality. In fact, sometimes in your own life, and I'm jumping way ahead here, sometimes in your own life, the rain is the biggest blessing that you could ever incur because it's exposing a foundational issue that you have to deal with. The rain is not the problem, the foundation is the problem. And so if you, if you remember just a few things I say, and you're like, well, you're in luck, that's, that's even maybe a stretch. If you remember a few things that I'm gonna tell you today, or maybe even ever, just remember this, the rain is coming. In fact, if the rain is not in your life right now, it just was or it's about to happen. That's the reality of living in a broken world. The rain is not the problem. The foundation is the problem and the rain is exposing the foundational cracks in your own spiritual walk with Christ. And so Jesus says two things as he closes out the Sermon on the Mount. The first one he says is highly controversial and so it's almost exciting just to talk about it because everyone loves controversy and culture right now. The first thing he said, in fact, he goes even further. He says, a lot of people who think they're following God are not going to be with me. And then the second thing he says is those that are following me have solid foundations. He talks about the way being narrow, and he makes this statement. This is what's interesting about that statement from Christ. What I find interesting is he's not talking in this context to a bunch of people with a bunch of different religious views. He's talking to Jewish people. They're, they're all following the Old Testament, the same Bible that, that he authored and penned as the author of our salvation. And they have the right religion. So you walk into this place, you consider yourself to be a, a Christian, a, a good out, upstanding member of society in Aberdeen, South Dakota. That, that's kind of what it looks like. He's talking to the church in a sense. But what he says is incredibly radical, and I want you to hear me say it because Jesus says it. He says, many of you have the right religion with the wrong heart. 2,000 years later, look at me when I tell you this, many of you have the right religion. You don't consider yourself to be a, a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness. I mean, you, you have a foundation in the sense where you know who Jesus is, there's not many atheists, just, just a heads up, there's not many atheists in Aberdeen. There's not many atheists in South Dakota. But the fact that you can have the right religion with the wrong heart is scary. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter seven. We're gonna finish out the Sermon on the Mount. He says this. And I want you to underline the very first part. Not everyone, underline it. Not everyone. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And so when the Bible says something twice back to back, it's showing significance. 
It's showing passion. It's showing this expressed will of, God, I, I really want your attention right now in this moment. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, again, there it is. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, Christ is making a statement to the church. He's, he's saying this thing that's intense. He's saying a lot of people who have an attachment to Christianity don't know Christ. That they can do all sorts of things in my name. And you can just kind of fill in the blank. He uses those examples, but it could be uh, something that we've heard for years at New Life. You know, I, I serve, we want to hear people's testimony. And it's like the, the, this laundry list of things that they've done. And all we want to hear is how Christ saved you. How he purchased you with his blood and how you recognize you're a sinner in need of that salvation. That you believe that he died, that you believe he rose from the dead. And, and, and almost just the majority of time within that, if that even comes out, which will stop the membership process of New Life if it doesn't. If you don't understand salvation, we wanna walk with you until you do. But in that, because we wanna hear your testimonies, will be this laundry list of, Lord, Lord, didn't I serve in Sunday school over the years? Or, Lord, Lord, didn't, didn't I you know, get baptized when I was a baby? Or, Lord, didn't I take communion whenever I showed up to church? Or, didn't I go through that confirmation process? Didn't I have this criteria that was religious to be met before you? So, of course... Do I have your attention? Of course, I'm gonna be good enough to get to heaven. And Jesus is saying to the people he's talking to as he closes out the most powerful sermon that's ever been preached in the history of the world. He's saying if you think your laundry list is gonna get you into heaven, you are sadly mistaken. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. That examination process is very simple. Is there affection for Christ in your heart? Do you know him in his death? Do you know him in his resurrections? What are your motivations for calling yourself a Christian? Here's a classic statement that I've heard many times that I think is really cool. In fact, there's a pastor at the Methodist Church in town that says this regularly. His name's Mike, and I, I just love this guy. He says, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? More specifically, what are those evidences so we can examine our own hearts this morning that we're deceived? And so one of them could be this religious activity that I just talked about. Your attendance, even in church, is rooted in religious activity. And it's not based on affection for Christ, but a checklist of things that you believe that you can do to get through this narrow gate that I'm gonna talk about in just a second. Here's what happens when it's about religion and not a genuine relationship with Christ. Those things that you are told you have to do according to the societal norms around you, and, and we've seen this happen in the last few years. I've seen this happen in the last 10 years. This has been an epidemic. As societal norms shift and expectations on you from friends, families, family members, people in the community changes, your priorities will then also change even if you're not consciously thinking about it because what's happening is you are doing things to be religious and doing things based on an expectation that people have around you, even like coming to church and making that a commitment for you and your family because you're saying, 
you know, this is what you have to do, and then now society's saying, you don't have to do that, no one cares anymore, and so you're not doing it as much because it's not about a relationship with Christ that drives you to hear the gospel each week and to be around the people of God where you're burdened for hearing the gospel. It's about fulfilling religious activities and responsibilities, and as soon as the social standards change, so does your behavior. It's a red flag in your life. Another way you know that this scripture is for you is that you have an indifference for scripture altogether. Write it down. You don't care about the word of God. You don't meditate on it. You, you, you memorize maybe in Sunday school a few verses, but when it comes to your personal beliefs and the standard that Christ puts before you, and the exclusivity of the gospel and the hot topic buttons of the day uh, based on what the Bible says and what culture says, when you come down to it, you go, you know what? I am going to be God in my own life and I'm gonna set the standard and I'm gonna rule and reign and if the Bible says something, if I don't like what it says, I'm either gonna ignore it or I'm gonna make a quick reason to believe why that's not true. I mean, if I could just see that everyone's awake, have you not seen that happen in the last 20 years? It is an absolute evidence that Jesus is talking to us in this text. Or maybe you have a weak, anemic faith, and I don't exclude myself from any of this conversation. All of us deal with these things. And so for you, it's more about what Jesus can give you, a better life, rather than you know, worshiping the giver himself. That Christianity for you is this idea, even if you've never thought about it like this, where Jesus is this cosmic genie in the sky where whenever your problems are mounting, you can go to him and you can ask him for a better life. And then because he's God, if he gives you those things, you'll follow him. And what I've seen over the years in ministry is people will do that. And even when they get the things that they want to get, because they're not in a crisis anymore, you know what they do? See you later. Jesus is being very clear to the church. There are red flags, and, and he talks about people say to me, Lord, Lord. And then he says, depart from me, I never knew you, because the reality is this, there's a lot of people that talk, but he's looking for people to follow him. He calls them men of lawlessness, and that's actually the same name for the Antichrist, you who practice lawlessness, and so on one hand, you're saying, Lord, didn't we do this for you? Didn't we give you this religious experience? Didn't we follow this pattern? Didn't we jump through these hoops? And he's going, I see your heart and I see your life. And to call someone people of lawlessness and even comparing them to, in Revelation, the Antichrist himself, he's saying, there is this contradiction in your life that can't be overlooked. It is not kind of a big deal. It is a massive big deal. And in Luke, I wanna read you this and then we're gonna move on. He says this. Strive to enter through the narrow door. This won't be on your screens. You can follow me in your Bibles real quick, or you can just listen. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Verse 26, and then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught on our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. 
And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Am I the only one that reads that and it makes you uncomfortable? I guess you can't really talk back to me right now. That'd be weird. But maybe like a thumbs up or something, right? I mean, when I look at that, I'm just, oh my goodness. Jesus is so clear. There's this door. And what's the purpose of a door? It does two functional things, right? It, it opens. And what else does it do? It shuts. But I guess the functional purpose wouldn't be whether or not it opens or it shuts. The functional purpose is that it divides some people are in, and, and some people, by virtue of what the door is even in existence to do, are out. On one side, you know, he's talking about salvation. On one side, there's life. On the other side, there's death. On one side, people are welcome in. On the other side of the shut door, people are standing at the outside, and he's saying, I never knew you. It's this door that few people find. Before you even get to this, the verse before that I didn't read to you, people ask a, a philosophical con uh, question to Christ. They say, who will be saved? And he doesn't really even you know, address that specifically. He, he goes right to the heart of it. Right? Jesus will take your philosophical questions and he will make them personal. Their, their question is for, for everybody else. Who will be saved? And Jesus just right out of the gate, verse 24, says this isn't philosophical. Here's a personal question. What about you? What side of the door are you on? This isn't about everybody else out there. This isn't about everyone else who, who didn't wake up and go to new life this morning. This is about you and your heart and your condition between myself and, and, and your sin and, and have you given it to me and do you have affection for me? This does not stand outside of you. Maybe you just came to church today and you're religious but you've never confessed Christ as Savior. He's not asking a philosophical question that stands outside of you. He's asking you, what are you the one who's gonna have the door open or shut? The door is narrow. And on one hand, th this entire conversation is exclusive. And to be exclusive is so absolutely contrary to everything we're told to believe in culture right now. Like just me saying these things, if you're new to new life, you don't know how weird we can get and how straightforward we can get, you're going, Man, this is uncomfortable. I, I didn't think he was going to say these things. This is not an inclusive message. This doesn't give me warm butterflies when he starts talking like this. I thought when he had a joke at the top, it was going to be funny throughout. Now he's getting all weird. I mean, so on one hand, it's, it's very inclusive, and, and Christ is inclusive. But on the other hand, uh, it, you know, it's exclusive in that it's for nobody else but the Christian. Uh, but, on the, but on the other hand, it's incredibly inclusive, and so it's exclusive. The gospel is exclusive, inclusive, all at the same time. It's inclusive in that every, every tribe, every nation, every tongue that confess Christ as Savior, your race, your socioeconomic background, you know, whether you're a CEO in Aberdeen or you're a person, you know, at the bottom of the org chart, it doesn't really matter. The gospel's for everyone who calls on Christ but on the other side of the coin, it's only Christ that's gonna get you into heaven. It's a narrow door. Atheists are wrong, they're going to hell. 
because they have no forgiveness in the blood of Christ covering their sins. And if that's not in your face enough because most people aren't atheists, pluralists are wrong. Not all religions lead to the same path. Christ is crystal clear. He says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Universalists are wrong. Not everyone goes to a better place, which I know is popular at all funerals. Christ says, it's just me, and it's just me alone. And the question isn't on a philosophical level, really. It's not, you know, what are the five arguments that's actually true? Most people don't go there, just so you know. I know some do, and they're called millennials, and they like YouTube. But the question isn't philosophical at heart. I work with millennials. They, they have a lot of answers. They're actually smart, really smart. The question is personal. The reason we have a problem with this question is we have this personal question. Can I trust Jesus? Can I trust him with my salvation? Or do I trust my own sovereignty to answer this question of a door being narrow and open or shut in my own life? Is there a more humble, this is a question to you, is there a more humble, incredible person than Jesus? Is there anyone else you know or have heard of that's raised from the dead and it's documented historically? Is there anyone else that's lived a sinless life and who's proven to save millions upon millions upon millions of people and radically change their hearts? The question isn't philosophical. The question is personal. Can I trust Jesus with this reality? Can I trust him that even though when he says these things that pierce my heart, that I can say, I don't know if I even like this yet, but I know that this is true and because he says it and I'm gonna believe everything that he says because he's my Lord. I still have these questions. There's some things I just can't wrap my mind around, but I'm gonna trust him. There's a finality to death. I'm gonna move on right after I say this. We're gonna go to this whole idea of building your house and it's gonna be quick, okay? But I just, I have to go here. There's a finality to death that that stands in uh, controversy to to religious beliefs that are probably right here in this sanctuary because of your background and I wanna address it. He says the door is open for a small time It's a narrow door and then it shuts and there's a finality to that door shutting because when it shuts, it shuts and that's it. There's no second chance of salvation after death. There's no intermediate state that you go to. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's an appointed time that once you are to die and then judgment. I mean, the good news is as long as there's breath in your lungs, there's still hope. But when it's over, it's over. So Jesus is speaking to his people But there's this narrow door, it's a single file line, and not everyone's going to heaven. And then he breaks it down on a very practical level, on the foundations that we build on as Christians, and he reads this, or he makes this famous statement that most all of us have heard, even if we're not Christians, verse 24 of Matthew, the closing of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone that who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall. Just a little side note, I I could not help but think of the three little pigs over and over. (laughs) I want you to only remember that from the message today. (laughs) And the rain fell and and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine, verse 26, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He says there's a difference between hearing and acting. And there's a way that as you go through this narrow door, there's this separation that happens where you know people that love me based on the foundational reality of how they build their house spiritually. And he breaks them just into two camps. He says, there are people, there are people that build their house on sand. And so when he's talking about sand, uh, just you can fill this in your bulletin if you do things like that and it'll be on the screen. You need to know this, sand is superficial. I looked into this a little bit. When you build your house on sand, it's a natural leveling process. You guys ever use sand as a level? It's a natural level, so the process happens very quickly. And so this would have been sea sand. It would have been softer sand. It would have, you know, on Christ the solid rock, I, I, I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so it would sink, but it would level. You could, you could make the process very quick. And in fact, one of the things interesting about building a home, unless you were rich, these middle-class people, they had these very small homes. You could build a house fairly quickly. And all the homes would have looked the same. Jesus' house would have looked pretty much the same as the person next to him and the person next to him and the person next to him. It would have been very mediocre homes, nothing real impressive, unless you got to a certain place socially where you had these massive homes in, in Rome and you, 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 know, you probably weren't a Jewish person to have that type of wealth most of the people are looking at these little mud hut type of homes that weren't very big that would have been put up very, very quickly. And if you don't look at the foundation, they all look exactly the same. But he says there's a storm coming and it's gonna distinguish and it's gonna tell on you. But that sand is superficial. And it's superficial to the point where it's just, you know, it's an absolute straw house. Three little pigs, right? You know, the, the wolf comes and he huffs and he puffs and he blows your house down. He doesn't even have to do that. This house is so weak, he just flicks it with his little nail. I looked it up, the commentary. That, that's actually how it works. It doesn't even take huffing and puffing to blow down this superficial spirituality. What does that actually mean? You know, well, I'll just give you a little bit of my opinion. It's people that go through motions that we've talked about for the last 15 minutes. I think I, I think I lied. I'm already into my 20-minute mark or whatever it is. It's people that, that have this mentality of, of God is there for me when I need him as a, as a genie in a lamp that I can rub to get what I want, and he's the man upstairs, and, and I can say my prayers before bedtime or before meals according to whatever social tradition's in place, but it's not really Whatever you tell me to do, this is the difference between building your house on a rock and building your house on the sand. It's obedience, write that down. It's obedience, it's obedience, it's obedience. It's whatever you tell me to do, you're in charge. Not I'm gonna carve out this piece of my life that's religious, but I still get to call the shots. And the question is never if your house is gonna get knocked down. It's not if, it's just when. And like I said earlier, the biggest grace in your life is when that storm comes that it's before your heart stops beating so that you have an opportunity because the time is limited 
to build a new foundation in Christ. So sand is superficial. But solid foundations, this is, this is where we want to close this whole sermon series out. Write this down, it's in your notes. Solid foundations, they leave a legacy. It's harder to build on rock. It's harder to build a foundation made of stone. I mean, the prep time and the digging time, it's, it's all just way more difficult. And that's the point. That when you say, Christ, you're my savior, that, that this is a calculated measure of counting the cost of what that means, that, that you're willing to give up something. In fact, you're willing to give up everything for the gospel. That you're willing to lay down your life and, and Jesus makes radical statements like those who follow me, we're gonna, they're gonna have to hate their father and mother and, and that's a whole other topic because he's, he's making a point. He doesn't mean you actually hate people, but to pick up their cross, to leave their places of comfort, to deny their self, Obedience is intimately connected to leaving a legacy of a solid foundation. I don't know if there'll be more of you at the second service, but I think there's some of you in here, and you don't have to raise your hand, because I'm a sociologist at heart, and I can tell by looking at you if you fit in this category. If you are single, I just want to give you, as we close this time out, a surefire way to live an absolute miserable life. Just plug your ears for the next five minutes. Don't listen to anything I'm gonna say for the next five minutes if you wanna live a miserable life, specifically if you're single and you're looking for someone to spend the rest of your life with. Solid foundations leave a legacy. The beauty of a foundation is that when it's built well, when it's built strong, when it's made of stone or made of concrete and there's no cracks in it, it's not compromised, and it's built on a level foundation that... Like many of our homes in Aberdeen, I have this house that I now rent out that by Northern. It's, I think it was built in 1912. It's an old Sears-built home. It's still solid. It's still going on. And one, I, I think about when it was actually built in the, in the horse and carriage that would have gone through town when people were actually traveling. And that's why the roads by Northern are so annoyingly narrow one ways, right? It's a whole different time. But generation after generation after generation have lived in that home. Families being raised who raised families again, and it's not even you know, multi-generational in the sense that most of us didn't even know each other that lived in that house before, but that's what happens when you have a solid foundation. And the beauty of the gospel is that when you have the right foundation, spiritually, this isn't just something that affects you in your narrow gate. This is something that has direct impact either for the good or the bad, depending on your foundation, for generations to come. And so to get your, your money's worth this morning, if you're single, I just wanna be very clear what I mean by this. If you are a single woman and you are lonely, it's better to be lonely than to marry a train wreck who has shown a pattern of history in their life of always running to sand that's quick and easy and not having any heart for Christ and then thinking in your single mind, yes, but they haven't met me and how great I am and I can play Jesus and I can evangelize to them and then they're gonna love Jesus because I do. You are stupid. It doesn't work. I've got case studies in the hundreds it doesn't work. 
You're wanting to believe things that you wanna believe for selfish reasons because you're lonely and you're not being waiting on the Lord and trusting him with that area of your life. This is not just about you. 85% of my counseling sessions dealing with married couples have to do with what I just laid out for you. Yeah, but I know this person, I know that person. The reason they stick out to you is because they're an anomaly. They figured it out, but they were a needle in the haystack. Don't be stupid. Christ says, build your house on a foundation. And to the men, we're we're the leaders in that process. In a church dynamic across America, we're 65% now. I used to say 60%. It's 65% of all church attendance is ladies. Men, we have to step up. We are the home builders. We are the home protectors. We are the spiritual leaders. We bear initial responsibility and make particular impact. We're the ones that build the foundation in Christ on rock or on sand. The last thing is this. I thought this one was clever. Maybe you don't, but just listen to it anyways. Here's the closer. The storm will always tell on you. So you think to yourself, you know, how do I, how do I know if this is what I've done? How do I know if this is sinking sand and, and there's really no spiritual depth to my life and I've been really good at being religious and even fake and I don't have a, a solid foundation? I mean, there's practical things. I mean, like we talked about earlier, are you in the word? Are you making these things of God a priority in your life? Are you standing for the truth of the gospel? Is your prayer life active? But if for some reason you still don't know, just trust me. Just trust me. The storm will always tell on you because that's what the storm was designed to do. When life happens, your foundation will be absolutely exposed. The storm will tell on you. The storm doesn't even create the problem. This was the opener. It just exposes it. It's a reality. If you're not in a storm, you were or you're going to be. And so in my, my old farmhouse, it's gotten a lot better, but the water has this brilliant way of making my life miserable where it creeps down below the surface and it always finds the weak point. I always know that corner that's gonna be the vein of my existence. Even though all the, the homes look the same, as soon as the storm comes, the homes look incredibly different. There's this destructive reality of not having a strong foundation. I think in my life of times where all the homes look the same and then I really get into people's personal lives and I would never divulge anything personally, publicly, but you can imagine, right, what that would look like and then I tout this, I'm a counselor and then everyone goes, sweet, when can I see you, right? And so I've met with a lot of people over the years and I've had to create some boundaries with that. But one of the things that has always surprised me in church is people that look seemingly perfect And then they come to me, and and you can tell they don't really want to because they've had this pretense about them for a long time. And they come to me, and now they've been, you know, putting on this facade for a long, long time. And maybe you guys have heard stories like this yourself where you've been shocked by something that's happened in someone's life who looked pretty perfect. And now, you know, 20, 25 years into their marriage, they come to me and they go, you know, we're just going to call it quits. The kids are gone. We just have fallen out of love with each other. And I'm looking at them, and I'm going... You look like you had your stuff together. And if I was to pick a house that looked like they had it figured out, I would pick your house. And and so what it tells me when they start divulging these details is I'm going, 
I don't think that foundation is, is what you think it is. I don't think that foundation is what I thought it was. I mean, that's just an arbitrary example that's just super relevant. But your rain and your storm will always tell on you. They will always let you know that there's cracks in the foundation. Verse 27, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against that house. And it fell, and check this out, just underline this, verse 27, and it was a great fall. It, it, it didn't just, you know, kind of one piece of, of, of timber at a time, one piece of wood at a time. It didn't just go, oh, there's one, there's another. No, there was a great fall. There was a massive collapse. And I'm just gonna say this one more time and I'm gonna pray. That collapse could be the best blessing that you've ever received. That collapse is grace on your life where you can say to yourself, I thought that things were one way, but my foundation isn't what I thought it was to be. And the grace on your life is Christ is going, it's not too late for a new foundation. That's the hope of the gospel. I had a teenager talk to me last week and she's been serving the Lord for a year now, just serving the Lord. And she, she said to me, she said, I, I had this moment. I had this moment where I realized this is how I was brought up. This is my closer. I need everyone to pay attention. This is a good story. This is how I was brought up, but God spoke to my heart and I saw my future. I'm gonna paraphrase for her and you're not gonna know who she is because there's actually several of these stories. I saw my future and I thought, I'm gonna carve out a different path because Christ saved me. This legacy of sand, this multi-generational in my life stops now. She gave her life to Christ and she's been baptized and she's active in church and she's active in ministry because that's how it works. It doesn't matter if three generations back is a bunch of sand, alcoholism, uh, you know, sexual addiction, people doing whatever they want with whomever they want and not giving a rip. It doesn't matter. You walk into this place today, the gospel's a great equalizer. You might be sitting next to the person that looks just like Billy Graham in your life and you're intimidated. It starts now for you. The gospel is the great equalizer. And that house that's fallen spiritually in your life is God's grace on your life to expose to you that you need a new foundation. No one's better than anyone else sitting in here or listening online. Christ is perfect, you're a sinner. Christ is perfect, I'm the chief of sinners. As we close out the Sermon on the Mount, you can go to him right now and confess your sin. Confess that he's Lord. Confess that you know in your heart, that regardless of how you think you're perceived by everyone else around you, that your foundation is weak and anemic. The gospel is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of his death in our place, we can live. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the hope that we have only in you. We know that today is heavy. But we also know in that heaviness is life transformation. And so you tell us that there's this narrow door. You tell us that there's going to be people that say they know you. And they're going to go before you and you're going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But we also know there's another crowd 
and the other crowd's gonna go before you, even if they, they, they don't look perfect by the people around them. And you're gonna tell those people that have affection for you, that have surrendered their life to you, you're gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant. And they're gonna spend, regardless of the legacy before them, they're gonna spend eternity in heaven with you. Not because of what they can do to get to you, but because of how you came down to them on the cross. And so I would ask Jesus, if there is anyone in this space, and maybe there's many, that has never said, Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross for my sin. I believe that you rose from death and that you defeated it. I believe that you're not a savior, but I confess to you in this moment that you are my savior. I'm tired of this garbage foundation. I'm tired of my doubt and my selfishness and my rebellion towards a holy and perfect God. Right now I confess to you that you're my savior and I surrender my life to you and I believe upon you that you are my Messiah. If anyone is in that place this morning, just quickly look at me so I know who I'm talking to. Come find me after church if you wanna talk. Jesus, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you for our foundation in you and we pray this in your name. Amen.